Well, I have several kinds of questions that I'm asking. First of all, there are questions related to my own work on the ribosome. And the, as you know, the ribosome is this large molecular machine that reads our genes and makes proteins. And one of the big breakthroughs about 15 years ago was really seeing this, the atomic details of this machine for the first time. That is 50 years after it was discovered, people finally had a, a, a first glimpse at what, is it, what does it actually look like in terms of where are the atoms, where, are the, where is the chemistry. And that led over the last 10 or 15 years to sort of lots and lots of work on how it might work. But then there are sort of new sets of questions. One is, you know, how are ribosomes regulated? How are they assembled? You know, here's this complicated machine. How does the cell put it together and make new ribosomes? And it's, it's funny that the ribosome actually makes part of itself because the ribosome makes proteins, but itself is made up of lots of proteins. So it's one of these, you know, partially self-assembling uh, machines, but it also requires other things. So, so that's one thing. Another thing is how the cell regulates it. You know, some, sometimes the cell wants to suddenly start making proteins, suddenly turn things off. And it does this by regulating the ribosome at different steps. And if it's not regulated properly, uh, it can lead to uh, you know, diseases like cancer and so on. And, and in fact, many, many genetic diseases in mitochondrial ribosomes map to defects in ribosomes. And viruses like hepatitis C and other viruses can also hijack the ribosome to stop making the cell's proteins and make its own proteins. And how, does, how do these viruses, you know, hijack the sort of translational machinery? So these are all sort of technical questions that I'm, you know, grappling with, which you can think of as sort of natural extensions of, you know, past work on the structure of the ribosome. And an irony is that, you know, I became well known for, uh, you know, some of the first atomic structures of you know, large pieces of the ribosome, like ribosomal subunits, and then the whole ribosome, using a technique that's about 100 years old, which is X-ray crystallography. Mm -hmm. And even the macromolecular version of it, which was done by Max Perutz and John Kendrew at the famous uh, MRC, Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, where I work, uh, that was done in the sort of early 50s uh, and, you know, uh, out to the early 60s. And so that's also sort of 50 years old or at least 40 years old when we uh, cracked the ribosome structures. And so the irony is that we, you know, I became known for using this, you know, fairly established technique, but, you know, stretching it to its limits to solve something that was, you know, a million atoms. But no one would solve the ribosome that way today because at the same lab where I work, where, which pioneered X-ray crystallography of proteins, uh, there's another technique that's uh, also being sort of developed. It's being developed worldwide, but my lab has really spearheaded a lot of the advances. And that is looking at it by electron microscopy without any crystals. And this requires, you know, th a thousand times or more less material and doesn't require crystals and doesn't require even purity of, of the sample. And so it's allowing us to take, get snapshots of the ribosome in all kinds of states and get ribosomes from humans and from mitochondria and all sorts of things. So, so it's almost like, you know, if someone were to describe, you know, what I became well known for, it would be sort of like describing someone who developed the Betamax or, you know, uh, I don't know if there's a, there's a famous book on computers called Soul of a New Machine, you know, by Tracy Kidder. And it was about a data general computer that was going to be a step above anything that existed at the time. The irony is that computer never really took off. You know, a few years after it came out, it was sort of superseded by the VAX uh, series of computers. And so in, in a way, it's a little bit like that, you know, that 15 years after 
the first ribosome structures were cracked by crystallography. Now, no one would use crystallography to do the ribosome. So that's a slight twist. Yeah. Of course, I'm not going to give back the Nobel because the Nobel was not for using crystallography. It was really for discovering, you know, discovery of the atomic structure of, of the ribosome and, and, the, and the functional implications of it. But there are broader aspects that uh, I think about now, partly because, um, you know, a year ago I became president of the Royal Society. And so that's led me to think about science in a broader uh, context. And one of the things that I really do worry about, well, there are a few things. One is that science has always succeeded uh, because it's evidence-based. And that's led to public trust. You know, public, the public believes that when scientists say something, it's based on hard evidence that they've looked at very critically. And more importantly, that when one scientist claims something based on evidence, other scientists who are his, you know, his or her competitors really check it out very carefully, you know, because they don't want to let somebody get away with something if it isn't really, you know, sound. And so uh, I think that's led to an enormous trust in scientists. And if you look at, you know, public opinion polls, scientists are among the most trusted of, of professions. And uh, certainly they are in the UK, and I'm sure that's probably true in the US as well. But we're getting to a stage where that's at risk for a variety of reasons. Some of them are technical reasons, and some of them are cultural reasons. Now I'll get to the technical part first, and that is we are now accumulating data at an incredible rate. And some of the data, I mean, if you look at, and you know, I mentioned electron microscopy to study the ribosome, you know, each experiment generates, you know, several terabytes of data. Okay. And this data is sort of massaged and you know analyzed and reduced, and finally, you know, you get a structure, okay. But at least in this sort of da data analysis, we actually believe we know what's happening. We know what the programs are doing. We know what the algorithms are. We know how they come up with you know, the result. And so we feel that intellectually, we understand the result. But what is now happening in a lot of fields is uh, you have uh, machine learning where Computers are essentially taught to recognize patterns, you know, with deep neural networks and so on. And they're formulating rules based on patterns, you know, which are, you know, there are some statistical algorithms which uh, allow them to give weights to, you know, various things. And eventually they come up with conclusions. Now, when they come up with these conclusions, we have no idea how they came up with it. You know, we just know the general process, but we don't know, you know, if there's a relationship. We don't understand that relationship in the same way that we would if we came up with it ourselves or we came up with it based on an intellectual algorithm. And, and so then we're in the situation of asking, how do we understand you know, results that come from this sort of analysis. And this is going to happen more and more as data sets get bigger. We have sort of genome-wide, uh, you know, studies. We have population studies. We have, you know, all sorts of things, in, you know, uh, for example, in weather, you know. So there are so many problems which are very, very large scale and depend on large data sets uh, that we're getting more and more divorced from the data, and there's this sort of intermediary which is doing the analysis for us, and that's a that to me is a is a, is a sort of change in our way of understanding it. And then when someone asks, "How do you know?" and we say, "Well, you know, the sort of system analyzed it and came up with these sort of relationships," and but you know, and and maybe it means this or maybe it means that. I think that's a philosophically slightly different from the way we've been doing it. That's one thing. The other uh, reason to worry is a cultural reason, and that is, you know, the internet and the World Wide Web have been a tremendous boon to scientists. 
uh, it's made communication far easier among scientists. It's it's somewhat, it's in many ways leveled the playing field. I remember, you know, when I grew up in India, you know, if you wanted to get a book, it, it would show up six months or a year after it had already come out in the West, sometimes two years, you know. And journals would arrive by surface mail, you know, a few months later and so on. And I didn't have to deal with it because I left India when I was 19. But I know Indian scientists had to deal with it. Today, you know, they have access to uh, everything at the click of a button, uh, you know, access to information. More importantly, they have access to lectures. You know, they can listen to Richard Feynman. You know, that would have been a dream of mine when I was growing up. They can just watch Richard Feynman on the web. And so that's a, a big leveling field. But along with the benefits, what has happened is a huge amount of noise. You know, so you have all of these people spouting pseudoscientific jargon, okay, and, you know, pushing their own sort of ideas as if it was science. Now, they, they couch all their stuff in technical jargon. You know, so they may, you know, they talk about energy and, you know, negative energy. What does negative energy mean, you know? So the physicist, it means uh, one thing. Energy means, has a very precise definition, you know, to a chemist or a physicist. These guys are using it in some mumbo jumbo way, but it sounds, you know, scientific. And so then, you know, we as scientists are very busy and often our science has become so technical it's, it's a real effort to communicate it in an accessible way to uh, the public. And so the public is sort of bombarded with all this information. And then it becomes, you know, who do we believe, you know? And the, the reality is, you know, even in science, there are lots of experiments that, um, you know, are, are, are wrong. Uh, for example, there's a paper published on the MMR vaccine which has been widely discounted by uh, studies. I remember when I was in the US, uh, there was this big thing about, you know, electromagnetic radiation and these high, high voltage lines causing cancer, okay? And of course, you know, when people studied it further, the effect just went away, you know? As soon as they gathered enough data, they found there was really no effect. What happens is the first bit of, you know, dramatic, study always gets a lot of press. And then the subsequent studies that clean it up and show that actually it wasn't a problem and, and so on, they don't get the press. And so the public then, you know, has a skewed, you know, view of, you know, what is actually scientific and what isn't. And, and you know, they'll say, well, that was published in a journal too. When in fact, you have to consider the sort of bulk of the evidence, not just, you know, one sort of outlier paper. And so this is becoming harder and harder to, uh, for, you know, the average non-scientist to, or even the average scientist outside their own field. And so, um, you know, how do we, so one question that really I, I, I'm sort of grappling with is how do we as a, as a science community, you know, grapple with this and really sort of communicate to the public a sense of what science is about, what's reliable in science, what is uncertain in science, and what's plain wrong in science. And there's sort of, you know, different categories. And how to live with uncertainty. You know, scientists live with uncertainty. We, we know that, you know, no matter how confident we are in our theories, it is possible uh, that we're wrong. And, you know, our ideas may be wrong. And, um, you know, we always have to be prepared for that. Uh, but that, that isn't to say that our ideas don't lack, you know, merit and that they shouldn't be taken seriously, etc. And this is a problem with many fields. For example, climate change is, is a classic field where, you know, uncertainties in the sort of consensus opinion are pounced on by people who don't uh, like climate change and, you know, and oppose it. So, so I think these are, are real issues that we, long-term issues that we need to grapple with. So, yeah, so the other thing is, you know, coming back to machine learning, yeah. and, uh, you know, there's a, I, I, I don't, you know, first of all, I do admire 
what machine learning has accomplished. And, you know, if you had told me computers would, you know, be doing some of the amazing things that they do now and, you know, beat the world, go champion and so on, I, I would have said, oh, thank you. I, I would have said, you know, that's incredible. I would never have predicted it. But going from there to the sort of general hype about, you know, we're now going to develop a general intelligence machine that will think like a human and develop consciousness and so on. I think that's still, to me, smacks of science fiction. And partly I think it's because we don't really understand uh, the brain at any at that sort of level of, of detail. I mean, you know, take a simple question like how do we remember a, a phone number? You know, it seems like a very simple question. But, you know, it has all sorts of things. How do we store a number? How do we know it's a number? How do we associate it with a person, a name for that person? And how do we recall it? And how do we associate all of the different characteristics that go with that number? You know, that's an amazing uh, problem that has everything from very high-level cognition and memory and recall to how does a cell store information and how do neurons interact and all of this stuff. So, you know, I, I think these guys are underestimating, you know, the sort of billions of years that went into eventually resulted in a, you know the human brain and um, you know until we until the two fields talk to each other you know much more and actually each of these fields needs to make more progress I think before they can even sort of agree on you know some sort of common framework of attack I think we're we're going to see machines do all sorts of interesting things, you know, driverless cars or, you know, getting patterns out of large data sets and, you know, playing games very intelligently and so on. But it's it's not going to be the same sort of thing. And I, I think part of it is that we tend to be anthropomorphic. And so, you know, when we see machines doing things that we used to think only humans could do, like play chess or play Go, we suddenly sort of make that leap into this science fiction realm that, oh, they're going to take over. Well, actually, they're going to do very, very useful things, that tedious things that we really don't want to do, or incredibly complex tasks that they're suitable for. But they're not going to be a replacement for, you know, human uh, thought and human sort of vision and so on. So I, I, I think, you know, we, we need to progress along with, you know, machine learning, and it's a very exciting field. I think if I were 20 years old now, that, you know, that, that's a field that would seriously interest me. But I'm not so concerned about these sort of, you know, android or, you know, robotic sort of scenarios of the computers taking over. So the machine learning and deep learning crowd that's working on you know, making computers do more and more advanced things yeah. uh, with a view of developing some sort of artificial intelligence, however mm -hmm. you care to define that. Uh, they, they're really uh, zooming along, especially mm -hmm. as a result of uh, all these machine learning uh, algorithms. And uh, at the same time, neurobiology is, is really uh, has taken off because of all sorts of tools that are developed to actually watch, you know, which neurons are firing and genetically manipulate them and really see what's happening in real time with uh, inputs and so on. So I think, you know, with all the advances in molecular biology and neurobiology and all of that coming together, uh, neuroscience is, is really also taking off and there's a big push in the sense you know, there's a big neuroscience initiative, almost like the sort of moon, uh, you know, landing initiative. It's a big sort of push to see, can we crack this really hard problem? So, and the guy that... so I think if these people, you know, talk to, 
you know, first of all, I think they, they need to progress much more. And then if they talk to each other, uh, they might be able to come up. But I, I have to say I'm, I'm more on sort of Daniel Dennett's view, which is, you know, I think the actual sort of evolved human brain, you know, it's, we don't really understand its complexity and how, you know, amazingly general it is. And uh, because, you know, evolution, we had to sort of an anticipate all sorts of unexpected things in order to survive. Right, so, uh, so I think, you know, this is very anthropomorphic. And actually, if we step back and looked at, you know, life and what, you know, makes life tick, and I think, you know, humans are sort of one species. We're having a big effect on the planet. But if we're going to be taken over at some point, you know, things that will always be thriving and, you know, existing on Earth, there'll be more things like bacteria. You know, bacteria can live in anything from, you know, the Arctic to, you know, vents that are over 100 degrees Celsius and in acid environments, you know, where it's, you know, acid that would sort of melt, you know, you or me. Uh, you know, there are bacteria that can live fine in these uh, things. So I, I think, you know, we have to sort of put it in a, a broader context. And, you know, when we ask where are we headed, you know, we don't live in a vacuum. When I graduated from physics uh, in India, I was bent on becoming a theoretical physicist. But I was only 19 and I hadn't taken the GREs. And so I uh, applied to a bunch of schools. And the school that would accept me with, and still give me a fellowship without a GRE was uh, Ohio University. You know, it, it was a decent university, but it's not like one of the big research centers in the US and it's in a small town in southeastern Ohio and I sort of settled down there and started doing physics but you know it became very clear to me that I wasn't really you know if I continued in physics I'd end up doing a bunch of boring calculations that really wouldn't advance anything very much and at the same time it biology looked to me like it was you know, progressing by leaps and bounds. You know, every issue of Scientific American seemed to have a major discovery. And it also seemed to me that these discoveries weren't made by big genius types. You know, they, you know, they were smart people doing good science and they would be making really fundamental contributions. And I knew several physicists, famous physicists had gone in and made a big impact in biology, like Francis Crick or Max Delbrook. And I thought, well, maybe I should switch. And so I s started off in graduate school again, uh, you know, after a PhD in physics. And I, I was even taking undergraduate courses because I didn't know any biology. And so I was, you know, I was in a class full of pre-meds, okay, who were worried about whether they were getting 98 or 97, you know, on their <laughs> exams. Mm -hmm. And I was just there to learn, you know, so it was a kind of strange uh, experience. But uh, that was at the University of California in San Diego. Then I saw an article in Scientific American on, you know, getting at the structure of the ribosome. And by then I knew what the ribosome was. So when, when I was in physics, everybody's heard of DNA, but nobody's heard of the ribosome. And it's, it's a you know, looking back, it's the strangest thing that even today, if you go to a non-biologist, very few people have heard of the ribosome. And yet, it's a much older molecule than DNA. And, if it, and it's a molecule that makes almost everything in the cell. Either it makes it directly or it makes the molecules that make the other molecules. You know, so in a sense, it's sort of the mother of all molecules. And it came out of an ancient RNA world uh, before there was probably a, a genetic code, let alone DNA, okay? Mm -hmm. And so the thing, so I learned all this when, when I was in my sort of second attempt at graduate school. And so when there was an article in Scientific American about chipping away at the ribosome, I wrote to the, these professors at Yale, you know, and, and there were Don Engelman and Peter Moore, 
I ended up working for Peter Moore, who was really the ribosome end of that duo. They were using a, a physical technique called neutron scattering to look at the ribosome. And so, so you might ask, well, why bother looking at it? Well, this is because, you know, if you uh, look at the ribosome, it's this enormous molecule. It has about a million atoms. And here it is. It's reading the message, the genetic message, which has been sort of copied from DNA, which is a double-stranded molecule, to a single-stranded molecule called messenger RNA. So for each gene, a section of DNA is copied to make this messenger RNA. And then the ribosome basically takes this genetic information and reads through it like a ticker tape. And it's reading the information, and based on the information, it's putting together a protein chain with exactly the right order of the amino acids, because each three bases on the DNA or the RNA is specifying a particular amino acid. And it has to know when to start and when to stop, and the you know, cell regulates it and so on. And so the question is, how does it all work? And you know, people sort of, I think, realized they were going to hit a brick wall. And many of the early uh, pioneers in the field just sort of left the field. You know, so Jim Watson, who was Peter Moore's uh, uh, PhD advisor, you know, he stopped working on ribosomes because he stopped sort of doing his own science and became more of a, you know, he was a director of Cold Spring Harbor and so on. But um, other people who were in the field also left. And, but then a small group of people persisted. And the reason they persisted is they wanted to really understand how it works. And you can't understand how a large machine works if you have no idea what it even looks like. You know, it's like understanding a car uh, without having any idea of you know, how it's put together and how the engine connects with the pistons and the crankshaft and the gearbox and the wheels and the steering and all of this stuff. It's complicated. And otherwise, all you know is that you put in gasoline and out comes carbon dioxide and water and somehow the thing moves. You know, and that's not an understanding of a car. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so I went to Peter Moore's lab and we were trying to sort of map, you know, where these things were. But, you know, that's not a, at the level of detail that's telling, there are two th problems with it. One is the level of detail wasn't at the sort of chemistry level where you could figure out, you know, how the ribosome did all these things, like recognizing the code and, joining up the amino acids into a protein and moving. And, and the second problem is that it was focusing on the proteins. Now, the ribosome is a weird beast. It's, it makes every protein in the cell in every form of life. Okay? And yet, itself, it's, it's made of pr lots of proteins. And so the question is, you know, how did the ribosome get started? Well. You know, it turns out the first clue to this came from Francis Crick, who said, well, maybe early ribosomes were made up entirely of just RNA. And then proteins got made, and some of the proteins stuck to itself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it evolved and became this sort of bigger protein RNA machine. But it started off as an RNA machine, maybe. Maybe with small pieces of proteins. You know. And... Uh, that idea is probably correct because one of the things that came out of the structure was that, um, you know, the interesting parts, the really important functional parts of the ribosome were made up entirely of RNA. And so you could think of the ribosome even today as having a fundamental ancient core consisting just of RNA. And then these proteins that the ribosome made uh, got added. So, of course, you know, we were trying to map where all the proteins were. But in hindsight, you know, it turns out that action really is in the RNA core. So even if we had had a higher resolution structure of those proteins and an approximate location, it wouldn't have really told us how the ribosome worked. And really, the, to, to do that, you needed a structure of the whole thing. And, you know, that turned out, you know, to be, it was thought to be almost impossible because, you know, it was much bigger than anything that had been solved by 
crystallography. And uh, a breakthrough was made in Germany by Ada Jonat and Heinz Günther Wittmann, uh, who reported the first real crystals of any subunit of the ribosome. So the ribosome has two halves, which kind of ratchet to read through this ticker tape of messenger RNA and move along it while they're making a, a, a protein. So you can think of it as a sort of ratcheting machine, uh, a ratcheting ticker tape reader, in a way. Uh, and um, they, they had produced crystals of the large subunit, but they weren't, you know, of this kind of quality that could give you an atomic structure, even if the technology had been uh, around. And then a group in Russia worked with a different organism, a, a, an even higher thermophile, uh, related to something that grows in the hot springs in uh, Yellowstone mm -hmm. uh, called Thermos aquaticus. But they worked with Thermos thermophilus, which was discovered in hot springs in Japan in the Izu Peninsula. And uh, the ribosomes from that organism could crystallize, and they got crystals of the small subunit as well as the whole ribosome. But none of these crystals diffracted very well. And for a long time, you know, people sort of kept at it. And I would say a second breakthrough came when, um, you know, Ada Yonat's group uh, obtained crystals of the large subunit that did go to uh, sufficiently high resolution that if you were able to solve it, you would be able to build an atomic model. That means the crystals were sufficiently well-ordered. That is, all the molecules sat in very close to the same orientation that when you averaged them all out, there wasn't too much blurring and you could get high resolution. And so that, you know, that was a, 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 a milestone. But after that, there was almost no progress towards getting a structure. And people in the field got frustrated. And I had done a sabbatical to learn crystallography. You know, I was at Brookhaven doing neutron scattering and realized that, you know, neutron scattering isn't going to ever be a, a, a really powerful general technique in biology. So I almost had to sort of change fields again in a way, at least change techniques. So I went away on sabbatical to Cambridge to learn crystallography. And when I came back, uh, I had an idea that using synchrotrons and using the fact that you could fine-tune the wavelength of X-rays in a synchrotron around the properties of certain special atoms, that you could extract enough signal, uh, even from something as large as a ribosome, to solve it. And I didn't want to sort of work on the large subunit because I felt the, f the field would really sort of jump on me if I, you know, took Ada's crystals and started working with it. And so uh, I started focusing on the small subunit for which at the time there weren't any good crystals uh, as far as I knew. Uh, but, you know, because she had been at it for a while and she gave, you know, uh, talks at a couple of meetings, uh, one in Victoria in 1995 and one in Seattle in 1996, the field really came to the conclusion that she was, you know, not making progress, you know, and she was, um, you know, basically they, they felt that she had reached a sort of uh, a block and that others would have to come in with new ideas if the field was going to move forward. And even though I didn't want to go head to head with her, I, you know, others like Peter Moore and Tom Stites felt, well, you know, She's not going to do it. Somebody should do it. And so they uh, took, you know, those crystals as a starting point and tried to figure out how to, you know, phase it, uh, which is how to get the uh, information from the X-ray diffraction data to be able to solve the structure. And so uh, it, I thought it was going to be this sort of race between them and Ada for the large subunit. And... I would have this sort of small subunit to myself. And then uh, I thought the small subunit was, to me, it was a sort of starting point. I thought if I could do that, then, you know, it would be 
a good time to then attack the whole ribosome. Well, actually it turned out to be this sort of mad race because uh, Ada at some point, you know, maybe she felt she was losing ground to the Yale group. She switched her attention to the small subunit. And uh, instead of those two being in a race with each other, I found myself in this sort of race with Ada for the structure of the small subunit. And, uh, you know, we, in the end, ended up with a more complete and higher resolution structure. But the structures of the small subunit uh, from Ada's group and mine and that of the large subunit from Yale were all published within a month of each other in 2000. And that was like a, a big breakthrough. And then a year later, one of the Russians who had crystallized the whole, uh, you know, well, a Russian duo, I should say, a husband and wife couple, Marat Yusupov and Gulnara Yusupova, uh, went to Harry Noller's lab where they reproduced the crystals of the whole ribosome. Uh, and of course, they couldn't have solved it to atomic resolution uh, at that time because those crystals just weren't good enough. But because they had the structure of both subunits from the Yale group and from us, they were able to sort of, you know, slot them in and get, arrive a, at a molecular structure of the whole ribosome. So then, you know, we had a sort of whole ribosome as sort of quasi-molecular structure. Mm -hmm. And then the field moved on and we had to get accurate structures of the whole ribosome and then the ribosome doing different things at the starting point and then when in the act of accepting a tRNA and in the act of moving uh, through the mRNA. So these were all, and, and the act of termination, how do you recognize when you've reached a stop and then a special protein comes in and says, okay, this is the end and I'm gonna chop off this newly made protein so it can liberate itself from the ribosome and go off and do its thing. Mm -hmm. So all of those things took lots and lots of time. Each, each of those was like a multi-year uh, project and so that sort of went on from 2000 until you know uh, a few years ago then about four years ago what happened is uh, a new technique uh, came online which is uh, single particle electron microscopy and this is a technique of getting three-dimensional structures by just looking at unoriented particles, randomly oriented particles in the electron microscope. Now, the technique had been around for quite a long time. It had been used for viruses in the 1970s, actually at the lab where I work, and you know where Tony Crowther and Aaron Klug, who used to be the director, and uh, also got a Nobel Prize, and uh, interestingly, he was also president of the Royal Society once. So they had developed this technique, but it wasn't used for particles without symmetry. So viruses have a lot of symmetry, and the sort of signal-to-noise uh, problem is, is a lot easier for viruses. And, uh, but then, you know, people like Joachim Frank, who's now at Columbia, and Marin van Heel, uh, who's in Holland, they developed techniques for uh, using this method, even with particles without any symmetry, like the ribosome. But the kind of resolution they could get was pretty limited. You know, we used to scathingly refer to them as blobologists, because, you know, you just saw a bunch of blobs. And you couldn't, you know, there's no way you could deduce an atomic structure from scratch. Of course, once we had solved the structure by crystallography, they could put the atomic structure into their blobs and they could say, oh, this blob is this protein and this blob is this piece of RNA and so on. But, but that's not like solving a high resolution structure from scratch. But a number of things changed. And one of them is that Richard Henderson, who used to be the director of my lab and who actually hired me, is the guy who gave me my job. He, even in the 90s, realized that it was going to be possible to get an atomic structure just by using electron microscopy uh, without crystals. And he realized that what was the, the problem was that A, the microscopes at, of the time weren't as good, good enough, and the detectors were really not good enough and were too slow. And he spent a lot of time working, uh, you know, both in, by himself and in conjunction with other labs and also with commercial companies 
to develop, you know, get better microscopes and better detectors. And that's resulted in, and then there are people who develop better algorithms. You mentioned Bayesian algorithms for machine learning. Well, Bayesian algorithms are incredibly useful for analyzing the data from these very, very noisy data from electron micrographs. If you looked at one of these pictures and you looked at what a ribosome looked like, it is so noisy. You, it is still, to me, amazing that you could get an atomic structure from something like that. And yet you can. And so uh, all of these techniques, both the hardware and the software, uh, kept on improving until a few years ago it, it made a, an amazing breakthrough. And uh, so today you can get high-resolution structures of the ribosome with no crystals at all. You know. So the thing that sort of everybody thought was a tour de force and you know, uh, got us our first ribosome structures, nobody would do it that way today. And so that's, made, that's opened up all kinds of possibilities, not just for the ribosome, but for uh, all sorts of processes in the cell because we can now look at very, very small amounts of a sample. It doesn't even have to be pure. It could even be a mixture of states. And the beauty is that you would capture all of those states at once, and you could be, you'd be able to visualize and get molecular structures for all of the states from a single sample. I mean, this is, to a structural biologist, this is like a dream, okay? Uh, because, you know, in the old days, you'd have to carefully figure out how to trap one particular state make sure it was stable, purify it, try to crystallize it, and pray that it crystallized well enough. And that would take years and years. Now, you know, if you're clever, you can trap a series of states, you know, limited number of states, get it all, get the sample, and then, you know, get a series of related states, possibly in, from a single experiment or a few related uh, experiments. And so, it's going to be useful, for, you know, the ribosome is pretty abundant and it's also easy to solve uh, by this method uh, because it has high contrast. But there are lots of, the, if you look at fundamental processes in the cell, almost every one of them is done by a complex machine. You know, you look at how DNA replicates, you know, during cell division. You know, that's at the heart of biology. How do you get two cells from one cell, right? That's done by a huge machine. You know, the DNA polymerase complex is this enormous machine that, you know, very dynamic. And how do you, you know, capture all these states of this machine to figure out how it works? And in higher organisms, it's even more complicated, you know. And same thing with RNA polymerase. You know, the RNA polymerase, how does it really work and how does it interact with factors that tell it when to, you know, switch on genes and when not to and so on. You know, that's an enormous complicated problem. And, uh, you know, once you've made proteins, you also want to degrade them. You don't want proteins to accumulate. If proteins are defective, you want to destroy them. That's all done by a very complicated uh, set of machines like the proteasome. And so you, can, so you get the idea, you know, everything in the cell is done by large complex structures. And so we're really at the threshold of a new age of structural biology where these things which were everybody thought was too difficult and would take you know decades and decades it, you know they're all sort of cracking and uh, so now we're coming to pieces of the cell but the the real advance is going to be you're going to be able to look at all these machines and large molecular complexes inside the cell, you know. And so it'll tell you, you know, detailed molecular organization of the cell. And that's going to be a big leap to go from molecules to cells. Almost every disease is essentially, there's a fundamental process that's sort of causing the disease, either a breakdown of a process or, you know, a hijacking of a process or a deregulation of the process. So understanding these processes in the cell in really molecular terms will give us all kinds of ways to, uh, you know, 
treat disease. You know, they'll give us new targets for drugs. They'll give us, you know, genetic understanding. They'll, you know, so, so the impact on medicine is going to be, you know, quite profound, I think, over, over the long term. I'd say the two big uh, moments of discovery uh, in terms of the ribosome were, uh, one, the discovery of the ribosome itself. I mean, this understanding that, uh, you know, stitching together amino acids to make up a protein doesn't just happen by itself. It's not like amino acids suddenly recognize little pieces or triplets of DNA or RNA and then somehow link themselves up together. Uh, it takes this enormous machine uh, to do it. Uh, you know, machine that's two and a half million Daltons in bacteria and almost twice that in, in higher organisms, million atom machine that uses up energy all the time to, you know, do, do, do this process. Mm -hmm. And it does it amazingly accurately. It's, uh, you know, even today, uh, the best protein synthesizers that we have in the lab, uh, you know, have nowhere near the speed and accuracy of the ribosome. So, so it's an amazing machine. So that, I would say, was a f one, you know, big uh, sort of point. And that happened in the 50s. And uh, the other, I would say, to bracket that was really the atomic structures of the ribosome. And that happened in, from 2000 uh, and, and the following few years, uh, where you could actually see what did this machine look like in atomic terms. Because that allowed you to ask sort of questions in, in terms of chemistry. You know, how does this machine work as a you know, chemical machine? No, I, I think, you know, the double helix has, uh, you know, a certain advantage. I mean, I like to say the ribosome is, you know, predates, uh, you know, genetic information on DNA. It, it's much older than DNA. It's responsible for synthesis of almost everything in the cell. There's no question that the ribosome, in, a, in some sense, is the mother of all molecules or the grandmother of all molecules in the cell. Okay. So, so from that point of view, the ribosome is absolutely fundamental to understanding how life uh, came to be what it is today. Okay. And, and it still plays a, a fundamental role in biology. But having said that, the, you know, DNA has a certain feature that makes it universal. Well, first of all, it is the heart of heredity. And, you know, we have wondered about heredity ever since we've probably been humans. You know, how did we come to be? Why do, why do we look like our parents? How come humans give rise to humans, birth to humans, and dogs give birth to dogs, etc.? I mean, this is a, a profound problem. And the thing about DNA is it was the first example of a molecule, a biological molecule, storing information and that information was genetic information or heredity so and it turned out that the molecule was a very simple molecule it it was a double helix and the information was stored as a string of letters along the strand of uh, the helix each of the strands they were complementary and so each strand contained the information make needed to make the other strand so in one stroke you know, a centuries-old problem of heredity and, you know, genes and so on, you know, there was a molecular solution to it, you know. So I think that is the reason for the sort of universal appeal of DNA. And, you know, that's only partly due to the two uh, sort of protagonists who are very colorful, uh, you know, and, and brilliant characters. But I think, and, and of course, controversial as well. And so that, that sort of added to the, the, the kind of the spice. But I think it goes beyond that. It goes to the fact that DNA, you know, addresses something that we as humans, you know, have wondered about for centuries. The other odd thing uh, in my life is that unexpectedly, uh, I was asked if I would consider becoming president of the Royal Society this came as a big surprise to me because, you know, I had uh, only lived in England for 
uh, about 15 years at the time and had come here relatively uh, late in life. And the other reason I was a bit surprised by it was that, you know, throughout my life, I'd been essentially, you know, a very focused uh, laboratory scientist. I had not been one of these people with, you know, wide networks and, you know, uh, sort of well-known in the sort of public sphere. And, uh, but, you know, it, it was a great honor and, uh, and I, and I felt it, it certainly wasn't something I could, uh, you know, turn down. And it had some interesting challenges. And so I, I said yes. And so the last year has been really very interesting because for the first time I've been taken out of my sort of little area of ribosomes and structural biology into thinking about really broader issues about science. You know, how do we communicate science? How do we ensure that science is reliable? How do we promote sort of interaction among scientists? You know, how do we convince, constantly make the case of why science is important? You know, not just to government, but to the public and to, to others. And, you know, it's, it's been a very interesting experience because it's made me think about science in a much broader context. And there's been a fringe benefit, and, and that is that I've met all kinds of interesting people uh, that I would never have met, you know, if I had stayed in my uh, little uh, lab in Cambridge. So, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, I still have my team in Cambridge plugging away at the so the next problems uh, on the ribosomes. It seems almost like the best of both worlds uh, to me now. So you'll have to ask me in five years how I felt about it.